Amen. Well, at this time, Antioch kids, you may be dismissed to go to your classes. Servants, we say to you as a congregation, let's say it together, you are sent. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here. While they are transitioning to their classes, I would invite you to open your Bibles with me to Exodus, the book of Exodus. Today's passage is Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, through chapter 7, verse 7. Young disciples, there are sermon guides over here on the side table for you to help you follow along. Um, Older disciples in the room, you can use those if you need help following along as well. Well, today we're continuing in our sermon series in the book of Exodus, which we've titled Wooed in the Wilderness. And this, sadly, is the last Exodus sermon of the summer before we move into other series that will be coming up soon. Um, Exodus chapter 6 is on page 49 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. And today I'm going to be preaching to you about the image bearer. And after unpacking a complicated passage, I'll land at this point of exposition. See, God made Moses like him. Young disciples, you need the word Moses. We'll come back to it later if you miss it now. And then we'll land at this application. See, God has made Moses. You, believer, like him. With that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Exodus chapter 6, verse 2 through chapter 7, verse 7. But I'll be beginning in chapter 6, verse 28. Church, hear the word of the Lord. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt... The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Recently, my family has been getting back into reading and watching The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And I would say that these are children's stories, but I think they're for adults just as much. There are lots of reasons that they have stood the test of time. You've got the characters, the adventure, the great storytelling, the presence of Aslan and the way that he embodies Christ. But one of the things that certainly has to strike a chord with children, at least is that the main characters, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, because of their humanly virtues, 
are honored as kings and queens of Narnia forever. This is every kid's dream come true, right? Like the girls are beautiful and wise, the boys are strong and valiant, and dignity and attention is showered upon them from every part of the kingdom. However, their royalty makes it that much more difficult when they return from Narnia back into their native land of London. Why? Because though they are still kings and queens of a kingdom, they are not recognized as such, are they? The world sees them as just another few average children. For example, this is during World War II, Edmund, a king, can't even join the military. And Lucy, a queen, receives zero interest from the handsome young soldiers. Who they truly are is hidden. Now, if anyone in the Old Testament could relate to this, I bet it's not a child, but 80-year-old Moses. The last time we saw him, his worst nightmare had become a reality. He had not only been rejected by Pharaoh, but once again, going back to the early time in his life, a wound so deep, he had been rejected again by his own people, Israel. And in despair, we heard him cry out to the Lord, Why did you ever even send me? Now in it we might hear the voices of the children of Narnia. Why would we ever have been sent back to this world? Wouldn't it have been better to have never gone in the first place? Moses has been chosen from all people to be the redeemer of Israel, to have the most intimate relationship with Yahweh of anyone on earth. You see, God is restoring his humanity as it was intended in the Garden of Eden. One scholar writes this, Far from being peasants, Adam and Eve entered the story as royalty. They were God's viceroys who governed the earth on his behalf. This is what it means to be human, to be an image bearer of the one true God. Young disciples, this is why it's so special about what God made us. He made us in his what? Image. And yet... Moses' everyday experience doesn't seem to match up with his spiritual reality. Anybody identify with that? You are seated in heavenly places with Christ. You're like, wait a minute. Like, I struggle to sleep. I struggle to get up in the bed, get out of bed in the morning. I struggle to get through my day. And you're telling me I'm exalted to the heavens? Hard-hearted people, you see, are dehumanizing Moses. Who he truly is is hidden to them. So much that even Moses can't see it. Y'all see, that's what dehumanization does. It leads you to doubt yourself. Even after God reassures Moses and then recommissions him here, we read this in verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. He's going after it again. Okay, God, you told me to go again. I'm, I'm trusting you. I've got some confidence because of that. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. You see, they had trusted in Moses once, but it had only made things worse. It felt unsafe to trust him again. So what does that mean for Moses? More nightmare. More rejection. Am I unfit for the job? Is the Lord? You know these questions have to be rising up in his heart 
After all, that is the trajectory that we often follow. When we experience dehumanization, it then leads to doubt ourselves. And if we let that go, it leads to unbelief. The Lord is not able. The Lord is not good. So what will the Lord do in response? Well, let me try to explain the the structure of this section of the passage in a way that's going to make you hungry. Well, some of you, if you like chocolate. Anyone here a fan of Lent chocolate truffles? Anybody? Okay, there's more of y'all than that. If you've never had one, you would be a fan of them. They are quite amazing. They come around come out very often around Christmas time. The way that they're made is actually quite similar to today's passage. Ever heard anybody explain an Old Testament passage according to a Lent chocolate truffle? Well, here you go. That's why I'm the best preacher in town, okay? (laughs) With a Lent chocolate truffle, you have this round, gooey chocolate center. You know what that is today? It's a genealogy. (laughs) It's the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. You'll see, it is a a gooey chocolate center. Now, there are two outer half spheres that go with a chocolate truffle. And those are the verses that go before the genealogy and then go after the genealogy that are designed to say the exact same thing. And then, if you put the whole candy in your mouth, the whole truffle, when you take the whole passage into your mouth, there's a message that comes out that's sweet. All right? So follow this with me. Let's begin with the center, the genealogy. It begins this way. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, the sons of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi. So what the author is doing is starting with the first of Israel's forefathers. He is showing who Moses and Aaron came down from. They are drawn out from the sons of Levi. That is the tribe who will serve as God's priests. But the author doesn't end with Moses and Aaron. But he continues on to lay out the line of Aaron. Then he concludes with this. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and Aaron. In other words, these are real people who came from real people. At this time of the reading, you could probably go talk to some of their ancestors and say, Tell me a little bit more about them. What's going on here? So this is great. But why in the world would a genealogy be plopped right in the flow of their story? I was talking to somebody yesterday about this passage, and they were like, Oh yeah, I was reading down through Exodus, I was tracking with the action, it's building up, and all of a sudden, genealogy. And so I just skipped over it and kept going. (laughs) That's what we do, right? So here are a couple of reasons. Young disciples, listen up. First and most obviously, a genealogy is here because it's a connection to the past. Young disciples, write that down. A connection to the past. God is doing a new thing in saving his people from slavery, but it comes by way of an old promise. Back at the beginning of of the chapter, before the genealogy, we read this. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am the one who appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That is El Shaddai. But my, my name, the Lord, that is Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them, and I have remembered my covenant. 
Now, this probably doesn't mean that they literally didn't know the name Yahweh. Scholars debate this like crazy, and there are all kinds of different answers that come out. It's not that they didn't literally know the name, probably, because the name is used in the book of Genesis. Instead, it seems like God is saying that they didn't know the full significance of his name, Yahweh. Remember, Yahweh will be forever associated with what event? What is the name Yahweh forever associated with? What event in the Old Testament? Anybody know? He reveals his name Yahweh to Moses. Moses is on the brink of leading the people into what? The exodus. Freedom from slavery. The the, the coming of salvation in the Old Testament. The most important event of all. That's, that's the event that Yahweh's name is going to be wrapped up with. That means in the past, they knew God only as a keeper of promises, which is awesome. But now he's going to be known as a giver of salvation, which is even better. So why does this matter to us? Well, I think it's paraphrased well in Romans chapter 4. This is why the fulfillment of God's promise depends entirely on trusting God and his way and then simply embracing him and what he does. God's promise arrives as pure gift. You see, neither Moses nor Aaron nor the people of Israel had done anything to deserve or earn Yahweh's salvation here. The Exodus proves this, that he is a gracious God who is faithful to the promises that he makes to his people. Second reason that there's a genealogy here is not just a connection to the past, but a connection to the future. Young disciples, if you missed the the last part about connection to the past, write down the future. Pay attention to the future tense that's written all throughout this passage. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. What is that? My promises I am going to keep because I am the God who is faithful. The genealogy carries on then two generations past Moses and Aaron to show that the Lord is going to continue to be faithful. And here is that gooey milk chocolate center of the truffle that there is within our God no self-doubt, no shakiness, He is El Shaddai, the unchanging rock. He is Yahweh, the fire of unchanging existence that you can bank on. Why does this matter to us? Why does it matter? Why does a genealogy in the middle of Exodus matter to us? Because in our dehumanization, we stand before God full of self-doubt, don't we? That's exactly what we see here in Moses and the design of the passage surrounding the center of the truffle are these two half spheres that basically say the same thing. Look at what the author designed this to do. Verse 12, before the genealogy, but Moses said to the Lord, Behold, look, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. 
And then you go past the genealogy on the other side of it. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am, un, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? It's the same thing. The repeated phrase, uncircumcised lips, carries the meaning of faltering or stumbling, incompetent, possibly even a speech impediment like stuttering. And so the picture that we get from Moses in the book of Exodus, according to God's word, is a far cry from the golden-throated Charlton Heston in the movie The Ten Commandments. Some of y'all ain't seen it. Some of you who are older have seen it and know what I'm talking about. Moses probably is a picture more so of the stammering King George VI in the king's speech. And even if it was not a literal impediment, but only a sense of insecurity, Moses has good reason to doubt himself because of all the rejection that he has experienced. But you know what you get when you combine God's faithfulness with a human's incompetency. When you put that whole truffle in your mouth, you get something delicious. You get a sweet message of good news that sounds something like this. I am faltering, but he is faithful. I am stumbling, but he is standing. I am incompetent, but he is able. I am stuttering, but he is speaking. God is speaking to Moses that which is spoken to us. As believers in Romans chapter 4, we call Abraham father, not because he got God's attention by living like a saint, but because God made something out of Abraham when he was a nobody. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, deciding not to live on the basis of what he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. Promises. And this is good news. You don't have to be a saint in order to get God's attention. Like, you don't have to be perfect in order for God to use you. Let me be an example of that to you. What God is doing is reversing the order that we talked about earlier. Instead of dehumanization that leads to self-doubt, that leads to ultimately unbelief, reverse it. It's belief in the God who is faithful. And the God who saves, that leads to confidence in who you are. That then leads to rehumanization. Being who you were meant to be. Belief in the one true God is what actually gives you confidence. Both, and this is crazy in the world, cannot do this on any level. It can give you at the same time both humility and confidence. That's what you're meant to be as a follower of Jesus Christ. Broken and humble over the realities of your incompetencies, your unworthiness, and at the same time, acknowledging, believing more and more, being confident that your Father loves you and that He's proud of you and that He's with you and He's for you, not against you. And so at the same time, you're both humble and confident. A humble, confident believer is being rehumanized, is becoming who God meant for them to be when He gave them His image. You are renewed like a king or queen of Narnia, as was intended from the very beginning. And this is the primary point of exposition from this passage. See, God made of all people Moses like him. 
We read at the beginning of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now there is a significant difference here from Moses' original calling. Initially, God had said that Moses would be like God to who? Anybody remember? Not Pharaoh. Who did he first say that Moses would be like God to? Aaron. Sorry, that was a hard one, I guess. But now Moses will be like God to who? Pharaoh. Aaron has already kissed Moses and paid homage to him as God's messenger back in chapter 4. Now, oh now, it's going to be Pharaoh's turn to kiss and pay homage to God's chosen one. Think of it like this. The powerful man, Pharaoh, who thinks he's a god, is going to bow to the weak man, Moses, as if he's a god. That's amazing. And in order to help me explain this, I want to quote at length, and I don't usually do this, but track with me. I want to quote at length a scholar who helped me to grasp what's going on here. Peter Enns says this. Moses' role as God is unique to this point in the Old Testament. But from a theological point of view, Moses' closeness with God should be seen not as a spasm of divine power, but as a striking episode in the type of intimacy that God intended to have with all humanity, but was lost in the garden. Adam and Eve enjoyed as close a union with God as any people ever did. They were image bearers of God. Further, they were given dominion over all creation. And as rulers of creation, Adam and Eve displayed their image-bearing role most clearly. From this perspective, we may think of Moses as God, as a striking example of Adam-like activity. Moses acting like God is not so much a comment on his superhuman status. Let me, let me repeat this part so that you tune into it. Moses acting like God is not so much a comment on his superhuman status. It is rather a sad comment on the subhuman status to which the rest of humanity, in this case the Israelites, have sunk because of Adam's sin. From this perspective, Moses is not superhuman, but truly human. He is a new Adam. His true humanity is displayed precisely in his intimacy with God. You see, it's rehumanization. Satan had whispered lies in the garden. You remember what he said? God knows you'll be like him. And the inference there being, and he doesn't want you to be like him. But here through Moses, God is saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I do want you to be like me. And it's what I've wanted from the very beginning. I'm not ashamed of you. In fact, I'm so proud and so confident in you that I would unleash my entire creation to your care. That's what God did in the beginning. Yes, that has meaning for you, tired mama, for you, exasperated employee, for you, bored kid, for you, lonely foreigner, 
His desire for you to be truly human again, to be a renewed image bearer, even in the face of your faltering, is what will allow you to do this in verse 6. To follow in the same footsteps of Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And now, if you want to forget that they are not superhuman, Moses and Aaron was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Despite all the dehumanization, despite all the doubt, despite their age, Moses and Aaron walk in obedience. It's like Narnian kings on a sidewalk in London. There's nothing outwardly impressive about them. And it reminds me of these important words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power within us belongs to God and not to us. These faltering vessels are conduits of power in Yahweh's hands. And not just Moses and Aaron, but listen to what else the Lord says. The Lord says this, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know in doing this that I am the Lord. The reason why I point this out to you is the Lord describes his people, the children, children, of Israel as what here? Anybody notice what the word was? I will bring my hosts. Now, what is hosts? This is a word that's typically used for armies, often used of angels, even. So later we are told that the people of Egypt left equipped for battle. Like, what? Israel didn't even have an organized army. They didn't march. They didn't march out of Egypt. Like they limped out with women and children and elderly and those who had been exhausted by slavery. Like, how can they be the Lord's armies? Unless these faltering vessels are conduits of power. Unless God's weaklings are actually God's warriors. Unless the rehumanized. Are royalty. And that's the point of application that I want to draw from all this. See, God has made of all people, you, believer, like Him. That is, if you have come to know God's greatest image bearer, Jesus Christ. Listen, if anyone ever walked the earth as a royal warrior who served as a conduit of power, it was the Son of God himself. He was chosen from all people to be the Redeemer, to have the most intimate relationship with Yahweh of anyone ever. He was all that it meant to be truly human. To govern the earth on God's behalf as a ruler of all creation. That's why we are told that the government was upon his shoulders. And that all creation was made by him and for him. And yet look at how he came. Not like Pharaoh. But like Moses. Not Charlton Heston Moses. The full significance of of who Jesus was, was hidden 
For 30 years, he lived as just an average person, a slave to the occupying superpower of Rome. We think of Jesus and following him, and we need to be like doing all these crazy miracles, but so much of his life was just normal. Things that were not really that noticeable, and yet were perfect and faithful and seen by God. Can you imagine, though, the dehumanization of being the king of kings and yet not recognized as such? The zero interest from people bearing his image. And imagine the temptation to self-doubt when he did begin to reveal himself and yet faced overwhelming rejection. Satan whispers to him in the wilderness, If you are the Son of God, if... The inference being, your father doesn't want you to be like him. You are less than. The leaders of Israel outright reject him. Then his closest friends reject him. Then it's as if heaven itself rejects him as he suffers and dies on a cross. There is no greater expression of dehumanization than Christ on a cross. There is no greater case for unbelief, for Jesus to cry out, God, why did you ever even send me? There is more than faltering lips here. His very body is faltering as it takes on the full measure of sins all the way from the first humans to the last. Why did he come this way? So that he could be the true Moses. More than made like God to us, but to be God to us. So that he could enter into the full experience of humanity and take our place in every way. You see, in coming like Moses, he came as the truest image bearer who has ever been. As we are told at the beginning of Hebrews, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You see, in Christ on the cross, we see El Shaddai the unchanging rock. We see Yahweh, the fire of unchanging existence. And then in Christ risen from the tomb, we see God not only as the giver of salvation, but as the keeper of promises. The promise that he would send the son to crush Satan and the subhuman status to which we've all sank because of Adam's sin. God is faithful. If you want to see an example, look to Jesus Christ. And so... Come with your doubt. Come with your unbelief. And trade it for the belief and the confidence that he will renew you as his little kings and queens forever. This is the path back to being rehumanized. Convinced that he has made of all people you, believer, like him, just as he wanted from the very beginning. That you would be a faltering vessel that is actually a conduit of power. A weakling. Who is actually a warrior. That when you're on a sidewalk in Louisville, Kentucky, you believe that you're still a king or queen in the kingdom of God. You say, that's crazy. That's going to leave me arrogant. Not if you understand the gospel. Not if you understand the full story of your state. And how gracious he was to raise you up and sit you with him in heavenly places. Let me give you some examples. When others take a posture of complaint, but you take a posture of gratitude, you are being a king or queen of the kingdom of God. 
When others greet people with a face of apathy, but you greet them with a smile of welcome and warmth, you are being a king or queen of the kingdom of God. When others twist all the parts of creation for selfish ends, but you redeem them to be used for good, you're king or queen of the kingdom of God. When others walk into a room and either withdraw in insecurity or work the room in pride, But you believe because of Christ, you have something to offer somebody who is in that room. Whether it's a family group space, this Sunday gathering space, your household, your workplace, your classroom, whatever. I bring something. Going back to what Nathan talked about last week and Christ saying, I'm the light of the world. And then also saying, you're the light of the world. There is actually, when you walk into a space, light that comes in. Because of who you are, not just because of what you do. And so be who you are, and that will flow out. So we talked about this in family group this, this past week. When others tell messages of really bad news, but you tell a message of good news that is sweet to taste, like a lint chocolate truffle, you're being a king or a queen in the kingdom of God. Do you see it? Do you believe it? And to help us see it and believe it, here is a great royal feast laid out for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant. There's a new promise that I will make. That promise is sealed by the shedding of my blood. That as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you don't mosey forward like a funeral procession, remembering that he died for you, and you should feel guilty for that because you're a sinner. No, no. You announce the Lord's death until he comes, because he's coming for you where he will raise you up to experience the fullness of what I've described this morning. Our tradition here at Antioch is to come forward, if you're a baptized believer, to break off a piece of bread and dip it into the juice, taking it, remembering what Christ has done for you and what he promises to do upon his coming return. There's gluten-free available over on this side. If you're here today and you're a believer, but you've not yet been baptized, I want to invite you to walk in obedience to Christ by taking that first step. Talk to one of us as pastors and we can help prepare you for that even next Sunday. If you're here today and you're not a believer, this royal feast is not yours to take. Instead, take Christ. Take hold of the intimacy that he wants to give you with God. And he's proved it through what he's done with his son. There'll be pastors in the back, folks to pray with anyone who has any need at all. Please come. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you in the quiet of this moment. We've heard your word and it has done its work in our hearts. And for some, it has done a hardening work because they are refusing it. And for others, we hope, even all, it has done a softening work to draw them closer to yourself, to repent of sins, to turn away from unbelief, and to remember your heart's posture toward us. That through Christ, your anger, your wrath towards sin can be appeased forever. And once again, we can be restored to Adam and Eve-like image-bearing.
where we walk this world, though limited in this time, but we see ourselves as little kings and little queens of your kingdom, whom you share the rule with through the power of your spirit. And we are able and privileged then to go out and shine as light through our intimacy with you. Lord, may that refresh your people. May you refresh your people with this royal feast that is laid before them. And for those who do not know you, we do plead, Father, that this day they would choose to turn away from their effort to be good enough or their fear that they are bad enough, and they would instead turn to you and receive this free gift of your salvation that is according to your promise. Your promise from the very beginning when we messed it all up. You are faithful, Lord. So be glorified in your faithfulness as the giver of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.